we get almost to the end of the book of Hebrews today. So if you remember last week, we started, uh, we started with Hebrews 11, and we talked about my favorite way to think about the application parts, either of the letters of scripture or of the sermon pieces, is landing the plane. Right, we've, we've had this big idea that's been being built over the whole entire book, showing us about how Jesus is greater than the law and all these things that this means. And then so we get to last week and we say, okay, what do we do with this? And it starts with our testimony. What, what should our lives look like? You know, what should our speech look like? What should our actions look like? Our thoughts, all of this. What does it look like if Jesus is greater than the law? And Hebrews 11:1, 1, all the way through the first two verses of 12, kind of told us, well, God has always been about testifying reconciliation through faith. Right? That, that what God's always been showing us is that it's faith in him. He is who he says he is. He's done what he says he's done. For us, specifically faith in Christ, it's always been faith that he's been after. So in the testimony of our lives, like what we're talking about, what we want to do with others, what we're striving towards, all of that is to, to point toward faith. Uh, I get that that's still kind of a bigger picture idea. So the author is, is still kind of descending the plane, if you will. He's going to get a little bit more specific today to say, okay, if the testimony of our lives is supposed to be of faith, then what does, what does that look like? But the author today specifically looks at it in terms of suffering. Now, I, I want to give a little bit of a disclaimer because we are, we are going to be reading scripture that talks a lot about enduring through suffering. And I know there are a lot of different directions we can take texts that deal with suffering. And I also know as your pastor that I'm not speaking to a group of people where, you know, we all have hypothetical ideas about different suffering. I mean, we, we have walked through some things together. You guys have walked through some things in your life. So when we're talking about suffering, it's not a hypothetical what if. Like you guys have situations you are thinking about saying, no, I know what that, that feels like. So I, I want to be careful as we go through the text to, to clarify a couple of things to say, I, I can't give you a blanket answer to, you know, what is everything the Bible says about handling suffering just from this passage today. But, but, we are reading a letter written from an author to an audience in the heart of Christ, in the teaching of Christ, to say, in this situation, this is what it looks like to walk through suffering through faith. So just because I can't give us a blanket answer today, there is a lot of really uh, really powerful truth that should help us in the way that we process, in the way that we walk through suffering. So, um, again, I may not be able to be as specific as I would like to be for some things, but our author is really going to help us kind of get an idea down of, okay, if I'm supposed to testify a life of faith, but I know that this doesn't happen in a vacuum, right, where things are difficult and we go through suffering, we go through trauma, then what does it look like for me to actually still live out a picture, a testimony of faith in those moments? So here's kind of where the author of Hebrews is going to land today, showing us that enduring through faith in Christ disciplines us in God's image. So as we're disciplining or as we're enduring hardship through faith, What's being done is we're being disciplined. We're going to see the word trained come up, trained in God's image, so that we bear God's image in all things, kind of the goal. We're going to be called to endure through faith so that we're disciplined in God's image, so that we bear his image in all things. So this is Hebrews 12, and I'll read the first two verses just because that kind of sets the stage as we move into the verses 3 through 29. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. 
And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? It says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and a darkness and a gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words make the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of a living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Father, I'm grateful for you this morning that you are with us in our times of suffering. Lord, I, I mean, just this week even, I've been seeing how much I, I struggle to respond well to you when we go through hardship. Lord, that when we, when we face suffering, sometimes we, we have such a, a faith in you, we say, well, where, where could this possibly come from? Lord, I, I know that we have suffering in our backstory, Father, that we have hardships in our testimony. Lord, that when we come and we read your word, we're not reading it to just talk about you know, this nice theoretical what if. But Lord, we, you are speaking <laughs> to our very lives, to our, our histories, to our past, to our present, to our future. Father, may your spirit move, enable us to hear what your author was intending to write to their audience, Lord, that we would not pull things out of context, nor we impose on ourselves you know, restrictions or just you know pieces that are out of context, not helpful or, or even not true, Lord. May we hear you. May we see where you are at. Father, may we learn just a better understanding of, man, when we are facing hardship, Lord, how do we still approach you well? In your holy name we pray, amen. Guys, if we read through this chunk, I, I, just, I just think it's powerful because this all comes after Hebrews 11. 
right, where the author shows all these examples of men and women who, who faced suffering, who faced hardship, who were walking through some wild circumstances. Some of them even died from them. And yet the author says whether, whether they lived, whether they died, these are all perfect examples of what we see in Jesus, which is now the example that we are supposed to take on, which is kind of where the author gets to in chapter 12. What is this example that we take on? And it begins with this idea that when we endure through faith, we are being disciplined in God's image. If you look at verses 3 and 4, you see the author calls us consider Christ. Right? You've seen all these examples of people from chapter 11. Now think about what you've seen in Jesus. It says he endured such earthly hostility, hostility and suffering that he resisted to the point of shedding blood. And I started thinking, okay, this is probably talking about when Jesus is on the cross. I'm like, well, but it also could have been uh, when he was beaten. It also could have been when he was praying in the garden so fervently that he's sweating blood. Could have also been when the crown of thorns is being put on his head. It's like, man, Jesus, Jesus resisted to the point of shedding blood a lot. So this is, this is a big example throughout different stages in Jesus' life and ministry. He endured to the point of shedding blood. And I love how the author, I mean, when, when we read this and we say, consider him who did this, I immediately kind of read into this, uh, and this just may be me and not you guys, but almost like a, man, how, how dare you complain about how hard this is going through? I mean, did you not see what Jesus went through? You're really going to compare your hardship to that? that? That's how I read it. So if you don't, then, uh, then you're a step ahead of me. Because the author says this, I'm not trying to make you look at Jesus so you feel bad and say, well, well, I haven't gone through, okay, fine, I haven't been crucified on the cross. I guess I shouldn't complain about my hardship. No, the author says, when you think about Jesus' example, look, verse 3, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Kind of this idea of, look, if God could sustain even Christ multiple times to the point of shedding blood and even through the point of death, will he not also be able to sustain you through faith? The author points out in verses 5 through 6, he quotes this, this passage of Proverbs that says, because here's, here's what God is doing in the exhortation that addresses you as sons. It says, to not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, because the Lord disciplines the one whom he loves. Now, discipline, we really have to understand that word. And, and really, a good synonym for disciplined here is trained. Because we can almost read this passage with the idea that, well, whenever God is punishing me or putting something hard on me, it must be either because I've done something wrong or he's teaching me, he's trying to teach me something. And that's not... Not quite the picture that the author is getting across. It says, don't regard lightly the training of the Lord. Don't be weary when he's trying to mold you into his image. It says that the Lord trains, disciplines, molds those whom he loves. It's out of this, this hard moment of being transformed that, that God is doing this as an act of love toward his people. So you, you could read this as the author saying, look, God is molding you into his image through this hardship. Out of his love for you, he's reconciling you into his image because you're his beloved image bearer. Don't, don't treat that as nothing. Don't, don't say, God, how dare you put me in another hard moment. D don't, don't respond with that attitude. Because the author then really leans into why this discipline, why this training, simply in verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. And the author uses this language of, of a father with his children. Right Now, this is, this is one of the most common pictures in the New Testament. When our faith is described as a relationship between us as children to God, our father. And he says, look, this is what God desires of his children, verse 7. And there's a really interesting point that he makes in verse 8. Our author says, if you are left without discipline in which all have participated, he says, so you're not, this is not unique to you, right? Everyone who has come to faith in Christ, God has put through this process of being molded, being transformed into his image. So this is not just something God is singling you out. All have participated in this. He says, if you are left without discipline, 
then you are illegitimate children. That Greek word there, this is the only time in the scriptures it shows up. But it's used in some of the other ancient Greek writings of the day to describe a child being born out of wedlock, which is is just a lot of imagery going on at once. Because you've got this picture of God saying, okay, here's what faith looks like. You know, I'm like a father to you, my children. We've also got the picture in the New Testament of our faith being this covenant between Christ and the church, right? So this is kind of the author of Hebrews melding these two together to say, if we are in faith, right, if we have faith in Jesus, if we're in this this covenant between Christ and the church, to be a legitimate child, right, a child of that covenant, we should expect God is going to be training us, that God is going to be molding us into his image, and that it, it kind of comes in the context of, of discipline, of almost, as John and I were talking about this week, going through tests, right? God is actually going to shape us into his image. But the author says, look, what good is it to be a child that's not being molded? It says, if you're not a child being molded, being trained, being disciplined, then you're not really a child of the covenant at all. You are an illegitimate child and not sons. Now, again, the focus of the author here is not on, oh man, do I need to sit here and wonder about whether I'm a legitimate child or not? The author is saying, you should expect this. That if we are going to have faith in Christ, and if God is really at work reconciling creation to creator, then it means God is doing a work in us of saying, look, not everything in you right now perfectly bears my image. Not every thought you have is glorifying to me. Not every action you want to take, even if it's for my name, not every single one is a helpful one. Not all of them line up with exactly what I'm doing. I, the Lord, have to do this work of discipline, of training, of of shaping you, teaching you, that okay, this is who I am. This is what it looks like to be loving in this moment. This is what it looks like to be gracious. This is what it looks like to be firm in righteousness in these all these different moments. The author says, look, you've you've seen this example in your earthly parents or in other men and women in your lives, would it not be surprising to say that that is also how God is working with us, verses 9 and verse 10. And I love where the author goes in verse 11, says, look, I know that this is a very difficult work, right? Like when we picture coming to faith in Christ and we talk about the freedom that we have in Christ and the the, the freedom as we overcome sin. I mean, sometimes we think of freedom and we just immediately go to comfort and we put the two together. The author says, don't, don't mistake freedom as just bringing comfort. Yes, we are free in Christ, but because we're in Christ, we're going to be trained. We're going to be molded. And for the moment, all discipline seems painful, right? How many of us have ever had to train for something, I mean, whether it's an athletic endeavor or whether it's, you know, just preparing for a test. How many of you would say that you really, truly enjoyed the training process, preparing for tests? Uh, there's, I can't think of any moment where sitting down to study for a test, my first thought was, I am so excited. I get to review all my materials. I get to think about all the different questions I could be. I'm just super excited for this. We typically like what the end of the test is going to look like, right? Here, I can get that good grade, or I can get the certification, or I can pass to the next stage. We like the end result, but none of us typically go into the desk going, I am so excited to be tested with this. I don't think the author is necessarily trying to move us to that point where we're just like, yes, I get to take a test. He's saying, look, I get that the discipline seems painful in the moment, but here's where it gets us. It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God says, look, I, what I'm desiring to do in you, because Jesus is greater than the law, right? All these chapters, I'm doing the work of shaping you into my image. This, this is the testimony piece a little bit more specific. I want to show you who I am and teach you to bear who I am in all things. 
right? So this is, this is the first kind of picture that the author of Hebrews is getting us to understand. Then the whole rest of the chapter builds off of this, and it answers this question, okay, if that's the work God is doing, then what is he really after? If he's trying to train us into his image, then why? Why is God doing this work of discipline? What's the goal of endurance? And, and I realized as I was writing it this week, I, I don't think this is going to catch anybody off guard this morning, okay? I, I, don't, I hope it doesn't take anybody by surprise. But what the point of all of this is important to understand because if we think about what the end goal of endurance is, it shapes how we live in the middle while we're enduring. The point of all of this, enduring through faith in Christ, we're being disciplined in God's image so that we bear his image in all things. Again, I hope that's not groundbreaking to anyone this morning. But why... As I was thinking about this this week, I was like, is that really the point that needs to be made? Why would the author of Hebrews have to make this point to this audience? Unless the author of Hebrews knows that even though that sounds good, oh yes, God would want me to bear his image in all things. Even though we can mentally agree with that, when you and I face hardship, that's not our default. The author wouldn't be telling us this if we already understood it. And I started to think about, at least from my personal life, whenever, whenever I have thought about Endurance Church, it's not typically been in this vein of, who am I becoming? It's typically been along the lines of, I just have to endure whatever this moment is. Right? So another way to say this is, we see God as testing us to endure things, And pending a successful completion of enduring that thing, then we take on a new piece of God's image. Instead of seeing God as testing us to grow his image in us through all things. It may sound the same, but the distinction I'm making is sometimes we think about God's endurance, not who is God trying to make us, but God, I just need to get through this hard moment. And the author of Hebrews shows us in these next verses, these are not the same thing. But it really makes a huge difference for the way we live by faith if we endure the, in the idea, I'm trying to become more in the image of God. Not, I'm just trying to get over this hard moment. So the, the author in verses 12 through 15, right? Right after saying, I know that discipline is hard, but look where we're going, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Immediately, the author describes endurance as something that strengthens and encourages us, verse 13, right? It, it lifts our hands, it strengthens our knees, it makes straight our paths, right? But to what end? Are we being strengthened and encouraged because we're, we're just trying to overcome the hard moment in front of us? Or are we being strengthened and encouraged so that we look more like God in the midst of whatever we're facing? The author points out, we're being strengthened and encouraged to make straight paths for your feet so that we can receive healing. Verse 13, to strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Verse 14, to obtain the grace of God verse 15, to not be divided by any roots of bitterness, 15. These aren't specific situations, right? God's not saying, depending on how well you endure this is whether or not you're going to get my image. God says, I am growing in you my image so that no matter what you have in front of you, you are going to learn to look, respond, to act more like me. Then the author gives us this example, like Esau. He says, you don't want to be like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal, therefore he gave up his inheritance, okay? Did Esau fail because he didn't pass the test? Or did he fail because he punted on being God's image bearer? From what we know of the story of Esau, he is the grandson of Abraham, the son of Isaac. He's the firstborn. So all the covenant stuff is going to be coming through him. And Esau, when he's confronted with a hard moment, right? I'm hungry. I need to be fed. He's willing to sell his birthright. 
not that he's doing the wrong thing to pass the test, but Esau is saying, you know what? Like, rather than bear the responsibility of showing who God is in this moment, Jacob, you take that. <laughs> just, just give me some stew. That, that that's how little Esau valued being in the covenant that God had. He, he's flat out saying, God, rather than being disciplined, rather than being trained in your image, I just want this momentary comfort. I want a bowl of stew because I'm hungry. So it's this picture of the author saying, look, don't be like Esau. Don't be saying when you're facing hardship, God, just get me out of it because I can't endure this moment. What is taking place is God saying, what does it look like for you to respond like me, to be like me, to live out my image through what you're facing? The author kind of ties all of this back into the law and the previous 10 chapters in verses 18 through 24. He says, look, I understand that this is how it is tempting to live under the law, right? If you think about this background for the audience, living under the law, there's, I forget the exact number, but there's like 600 plus or minus 13, it's like 613 something commands in the Old Testament law. So it's very easy with such a comprehensive law that the audience would say, yeah, well, what it looks like to endure is to make sure that at any moment I'm checking off all the boxes, right? Like I know the correct thing to do, I know the incorrect thing to do, and I'm able to perfectly do this at any given moment. But the author calls out Moses and says, look, there were even laws that Moses was so terrified that he said, I tremble with fear. That Moses, this picture of Christ, the Old Testament audience, even he looked at the law and said, I, I can't keep up with this. Right? That at some point, even Moses understood, okay, God, then what this endurance looks like cannot be tied to just whether I perfectly achieve what you're asking me to do in a situation, it has to be tied to something else. And the author points out in verses 22 through 24, says, you've got a new covenant. You have a new endurance. You have come through Jesus to God. Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. A blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, the blood of the old covenant. And was this better covenant? Verses 25 through 29. It says in Jesus' covenant, the work that God is after isn't just overcoming situations with his image, it's being trained to be like Christ in all things. The author in that section quotes Haggai chapter 2, verse 6. If you have a really good memory, you'll remember we went through the book of Haggai in the fall of 2021, as at the very beginning of our, our vision casting series. And in that book, when we went through Haggai, we talked about how what God is after in growing us, it's not dependent on the moment. Uh, the focus of our endurance is not on whatever is the actual situation in front of us. And, and I, I really struggled to get that this week because sometimes I see God keep putting the same things before me. And in my mind, I think, okay, uh, you, you think about, okay, the movie Groundhog Day, right? You just keep getting the same situation over and over and over again until you learn to do the right thing. And so sometimes I view my spiritual growth kind of like Groundhog Day. Just wake up the next moment, get to the next situation. It's the same thing happening again. That didn't work last time. Now I'll try this. And so the focus just becomes on I have to overcome this moment, this, this situation right in front of me. Make no mistake. It's not like the author is saying don't overcome the situation. But the focus the focus of our endurance is not just on overcoming the momentary affliction. It's on becoming in the image of God, in the image of Christ, in what we're doing. This is why the author says in verse 28, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It's not built on whether or not we've done the correct thing in that moment. That's, that's not the foundation for the kingdom that we have been given. We've been giving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, one with Jesus as its head. Therefore, let us 
offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Let us praise him for who he is and take on that life as our own. And I realized if, if I'm sitting in this early church audience hearing this story, or this, this charge, rather, from the author, then this is a lot more freeing than maybe it sounds today. And we haven't really talked too much about what exactly the persecution of the early church looked like. I just kind of keep mentioning that it's there. But today, it, it really kind of helps clarify this. So the persecution that the early church faced came from two fronts. Right? One of those fronts was the Jews. And the Jews at this time in history, really, they hated the Christians because they weren't Jewish enough. They were claiming to worship the same God, right? Claiming the same promises, the same Yahweh of the Old Testament was who they were after. But then you have guys like Paul, like Jesus, who, who come along and say, no, because of what God's really doing, Jesus saying in me, Paul and other people saying because of what Jesus did, we don't need the law anymore. And the Jews go, how can you claim to worship the same God and not need to follow the law? And I, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush because they're, the ancient world Jews had a couple different groups to them. So it's not like this was every single Jew. But there were certain groups of in the Jewish tradition that would read places in the Old Testament like Leviticus, like the book of Numbers, and say, hmm, when somebody was claiming to worship God, but they were doing it incorrectly, sometimes God put them to death. Therefore, it's not out of line for us to try to put these Christians to death because they're claiming to worship the same God, but they're making this ridiculous claim that they don't need the law anymore. So the, the Christians, this early church was being killed by groups of the Jews because not only were they not Jewish enough, they weren't even worshiping God correctly, which I think it's then mind-blowing that the author would even say in verse 28, let us offer to God acceptable worship. It says, don't, don't let the fact that the Jews are killing you, telling you you're worshiping incorrectly, keep you from following Christ, keep you from bringing acceptable worship to God. So they were being persecuted by the Jews because they weren't following God correctly. But they're also being persecuted from Rome. Now, at this point in time, this is about 30 to 40 years after Jesus' death that most people kind of date the book of Hebrews. At this point in time, Christians aren't really being systematically persecuted by Rome so much as they're being more culturally, locally being persecuted by Rome. You've got instances like in the city of Rome itself where the emperor Nero blames a lot of stuff on the Christians, and so then he goes after them. But it's, it's not so much like the Roman government has said, we hate all Christians, let's go through and kill them all. Well, really what it more looked like, because I was talking with one of, my, one of my professor friends this week about this passage, and he was saying, if you picture yourself in any city in the ancient Roman world, there was a god or a goddess who was over that city. And so what you would do just as a citizen of that city, you would go worship whatever the god or goddess of that city was. The book of Acts tells us like the city of Corinth worshipped Athena, the city of Ephesus worshipped Artemis. So you could picture us as say, look, we're, we're citizens of Virginia uh, or we're citizens of the New River Valley. You know, pick a god or goddess of the New River Valley and say, because we live here, we worship them. The Jews were one of the only people that got to be excused from this. I think Rome looked at them and said, that seems like a pretty angsty bunch. We better let them worship who they want to, and that will just kind of keep the peace. So the Jews got to go worship in their synagogues their God. They were excused from this. But the Jews have spent all this time saying, uh, no, Rome, those Christians are not in our camp. Don't give them the same protection. They're not actually worshiping the same God. So then, if something goes wrong, right, say a, say a tornado blows right through the New River Valley, then we all start going, okay, who didn't go to the temple and offer the sacrifice this week, right? Say, say something happens in, in Athens or in, uh, in, in Corinth. They say, okay, okay, which one of you didn't go to the temple and give a sacrifice to Athena this week? One of you guys made Athena mad. Of course, that's going to be the Christians, 
They're not the ones going to the temples. They're not going to be offering sacrifices to these Roman gods and goddesses. But they also don't have the protection legally to be able to do that like the Jews do. And in the ancient world, if the city says, why are five or six people, you know, making life miserable for everybody? They're going to go put to death those five or six, you know, that, that handful of Christians. So I, I think about it like this, right? If you're the early church in this moment, the two largest groups in your world around you, they both hate you. They hate you for different things, and they're killing you for different things. So if the author is describing an endurance in faith that's tied to just enduring a situation, you may be able to endure on one front, but you're still getting killed on the other, right? So, so to give their audience a picture of an endurance of faith that's going to go through all eternity, right, that's based on this big promise that Christ is greater than the law, it can't just be an endurance that says, well, if we just endure what the Jews are doing to us, if, if we just learn how to get along peacefully with them, we'll be fine. Because they won't be. They'll still be killed by Rome. Or if, if we can just figure out how to get the protection from the Roman government, then we'll be okay. No, they won't be. Because they're still being attacked by the Jews. Right? The, the idea of endurance, if it's really bigger then what this audience is facing, then it has to be focused on something else. And I love, church, that all of this comes in the context of Jesus being the founder and perfecter of our faith in verse 2. He endured the cross. He despised its shame. It's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. All of this talk about endurance comes in the context of chapter 11, where the author says there were men and women who died for their faith. That, to us, if it's a situational mindset of endurance, would say, then how can you say you endured if you died in the middle of it? And the author says, no, no, whether they died or not had nothing to do with whether it was counted to them as righteousness. Their faith, the way they endured, was that no matter what moment they were facing, they responded like Christ. It's the same for you and I today, church. No matter what situation is before you and I, no matter what voices in different realms of culture or the world are calling out about the church or about Christ, it does not change what God is doing in us and the call he has given us to bear the image of Christ. And I want to be... I wanted to give that, that glimpse into the, the persecution that the early church faced. And I, I want us to really be careful about thinking about application because I, I, at least in the church circles that I'm more familiar with, when we talk about endurance, we do talk about it more situationally. You know, where, where you could say, well, you know, if, if, you're, if you're sitting in a place in a relationship where you're being abused, or if you're sitting in a, a place of life where you're struggling with addiction, where you're being oppressed by culture, you're being manipulated by someone, then to really endure by faith is just to keep going through that moment all the way to the end. And church, I don't see that charge from this place in Hebrews. Now again, I, I can't give a blanket we're not giving a blanket summary of how, how to handle all suffer this morning. But the picture of endurance we're given, because if, it's, if we followed that situation out, if we followed that thinking out, we'd be saying, well, God is just allowing me to be beaten or to be abused or to be mistreated because he's just trying to teach me something more about himself. And that, I mean, does that sound like the way God works? Do we see that other places in Scripture that God says, you know what, sure, just go through that situation just so you can learn something new about me. That's, that's not the call, the charge that we are seeing from Hebrews 12. The endurance that we are being pointed to here, the object and the goal of our endurance is not on the situation, it's on Jesus, the founder of our faith, the one who 
who is the standard that we're attempting to live up in whatever we're going through. But, but not only is Jesus the object or the goal, he's also the one who enables us to endure. He's the perfecter of our faith. He actually allows us to endure. So if you're in a situation where you are being kept from living out the image of God, if you're being kept, prohibited from either for yourself or toward others, kept from the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, the faithfulness, the gentleness, the self-control of God, then I, I can't, as your pastor, come from this passage and say, then just stay in the middle of whatever you're going through. Because that's not the picture of endurance that we are seeing. I, I just, I want to be careful to say, again, I really wish I could give a more concrete example, but I know that to do so would almost cheapen the experiences that you guys have with abuse, with addiction, right? That sometimes the healthiest thing in the world to do is to get out. And maybe for you this morning, you just need to hear, man, that when we talk about enduring through faith in Christ, it's not an endurance that says, I just have to stay in the middle of the mess until I can overcome it. Sometimes the healthiest thing is to get out because what we are enduring in is the image of God, not just the situation in front of us. But to try to help us build a practical picture of, man, what do we do then, right? If this is the type of endurance that Hebrews is showing us, then what do we do? I'm going to read from you guys a couple verses out of 2 Peter chapter 3. Because Peter, Peter's writing to a similar audience with a similar struggle. And Peter gives a little bit more specific examples than our author in Hebrews did. So we'll, we'll close with this. Peter writes in chapter 3, verses 8 through 18. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people you ought to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Be diligent to be found by him, by Christ, without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of them in these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Three things Peter gives us here. What do we do if this is what endurance looks like? That we endure through faith to be disciplined in God's image so that no matter what situation we're facing, we're responding with what the image of God would lead us to do. First, we trust the nature of who God is, right? Peter tells us God is with us in all things. He's always at work fulfilling his promises. He's always working to reconcile creation to creator. He doesn't desire his creation to perish, but he promises his judgment against that which oppresses or abuses or manipulates or addicts his image. Like this is, this is what Peter says, this is what God is, is doing. He, he's not slow to fulfill as some count slowness. He's actively 
at work. And so church, I, I don't, there is an element to our struggles that's tied to trust. It may not be the only element this morning, but there is an element that is tied to trust. That many of our struggles, when we're being tested, what's really being tested is our, our resolve. Say, God, in the middle of this moment, I'm really struggling to trust your provision. I'm really struggling to trust that you provide life. I'm really struggling to trust that you are just. I'm really struggling to trust, Lord, that, that you actually see what's going on and are at work. That, that we just have a hard time trusting that God is who he says he is. So there's one element of our suffering that is tied directly to trust. Church, maybe that is where you need to respond today. Maybe you are in a situation where you're saying, God, I'm having a really hard time saying that this is who you are because of what I'm going through. So maybe today we have to say, okay, Lord, I need, it's, it's, it's my favorite prayer, and it's the prayer that I have to probably pray the most. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Like I see, I know that this is true, God, but I really don't, I really can't trust that right now. Maybe that is a response for you today. Another thing Peter points out, let God renew his image in you in hard moments. He says, since this is what is taking place, what sort of people you ought to be, lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Right, that is a personal call to say, God, with this hardship that's in front of me, I need to respond like you would. It's not tied to whether I can overcome the moment. I just, I need to show this moment, this person, this situation. I need to show the same heart that you would. God, help me with this. Because church, what our testimony tends to be sometimes if we've been hurt enough, then we usually get to the point where self-preservation kicks in. And we say, I've seen that happen before. I am not going there again. I will not, like, I'm not going to act like God in that moment again. So maybe there's a, a place, a situation, a hardship we're facing where we're just saying, God, it's, I feel like I've been hurt too many times to reflect you in that moment again. Maybe today that needs to be the response of our hearts. The last thing, Peter says in verse 18, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's a growing aspect to our suffering. John and I were talking about it this week, and he, he shared with me a quote he had gotten from somebody when they were doing a Bible study through the book of James. They were talking about how faith cannot be trusted until it has been tested. And I love how Hebrews 11 shows, man, there were people who were tested in their faith. There were people who were tested so much in their faith that they ended up put to death. The author of Hebrews says, death is not a determining factor of whether you've endured well or not. Death is not something that puts the final stamp and said, now you have failed in the image of God because you've experienced death. Abel, Enoch, Isaiah, the prophets, all of these were still counted as righteous because the reward of their faith wasn't tied to the death in the moment. But the scriptures show us they persevered in God's image all the way up through to the point of death. And for that, they were commended. So Peter says, grow in God's grace. As a result of this, grow in God's grace. Maybe that's what we need to ask the Spirit to do, to say, Lord, I'm so worried about getting this thing wrong. Lord, I'm so worried about what what might happen if I walk through this again? That I just don't even want to do this for this person. Maybe we grow in God's grace. Now as we consider how God is at work 
in all of this. Um, let's pray, church, because, because this is a big thing that we are going to really have to depend on the Spirit in each moment. God, what are you asking me to do? So with this in mind, we pray today, God, oh Lord, we live here as fishes without or in vessels of water, only enough to keep us alive. But in heaven, we shall swim in the ocean. Here we have a little air to keep breathing, but there we shall have sweet and fresh gales. Here we have a beam of sun to lighten our darkness, a warm ray to keep us from freezing, but there we shall live in light and warmth forever. Father, we confess our natural desires are corrupt and misguided, and it is thy mercy to destroy them. Our spiritual longings are of thy planting, and thou wilt water and increase them. Lord, quicken our hunger and our thirst after the realm above. Here we can have the world, Lord, but there we shall have you in Christ. Here is a life of longing and prayer. There is assurance without suspicion, asking without refusal. Here are gross comforts more burden than benefit, but there is joy without sorrow, comfort without suffering, love without inconsistency, rest without weariness. Father, give us to know that heaven is all love, where the eye affects the heart, and the continual viewing of thy beauty keeps the soul in continual transports of delight. Give us to know that heaven is all peace, where error, pride, rebellion, passion raise no head. Give us to know that heaven is all joy, the end of believing, fasting, praying, mourning, humbling, watching, fearing, repining, Lord. And lead us to it soon. Father, we do desire to bear your image in all things. Father, continually train us to be more like you. We are grateful for a community together that we enjoy doing this training work in. Father, comfort us when this training work is hard. Give us your wisdom to know when is it time to endure, to stay, to, to be trained. And Father, when is part of your training to know when to say no, to know when to exit, to know when to step back. Lord, may we not tie the success of our faith to how well we endeavor in each moment, but to say, Lord, we succeed in faith when we respond like you whatever is in front of us. Lord, knowing that if you are training us, you are going to put tests. You are going to, to allow trials. We are going, it, it, it can't just be comfort because we don't grow in the comfort, Father. May we not be surprised, but may we not lose our hope when suffering comes up, Lord. In your holy name we pray.